So we start off in chapter 1, verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So we'll stop there for now. So Simon Peter, very clear, Peter's the author of this book. Of course, he's an apostle, but he learned as an apostle of Jesus Christ that he who's grace in the kingdom is a servant of all. And Peter, of course, was that great leader in the early church there in Jerusalem with the Jewish people, as they, many of them believed in their Messiah, Jesus. And that was his primary ministry. And eventually God called Paul the apostle to be that apostle to the Gentiles, to the nations. And the two of them had very important ministries. But Peter was primarily to the Jews. But then, you know, he was that authoritative voice that went all the way back to Jesus saying, follow me and I'll make you fishers of men and was such a, a critical leader to the early church. And we left off last week with First Peter where he mentioned John Mark, and we know that the gospel of Jesus is revealed through John Mark's gospel, but it's really Peter's gospel, like that Peter, John Mark's gospel is sort of the, the life of Christ through the eyes of Peter. And we know that Peter wrote First and Second Peter. In the historical book of Acts, we get a lot of Peter, particularly in those early uh, first 14 chapters, chapter 15 in Jerusalem Council, where they worked very hard to maintain the unity of the faith when things were attacking the faith in the name of religion. So nothing new under the sun. But he says to those who have obtained like precious faith, stop on that for a minute. Those who have obtained, we, we receive Christ. You know, God, John's gospel says, as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God, not born of the will of man or born of flesh or born of blood, but born of God. We obtain faith. We receive Christ. We obtain it. We don't, we don't earn it. We receive it. And it's important to understand that when we talk about obtained like precious faith, we believe something and we receive something because we believe it. We hear a message Concerning the person and the work of Jesus Christ, we hear it, for faith cometh by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We hear it, and if we believe in our heart and confess with our mouth, we will be saved, as Romans chapter 10 says. So as Paul starts off right away, he makes clear that commonality of faith, a saving faith according to grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Not a Jesus plus some kind of works or Jesus plus some kind of self-righteousness or some kind of strange doctrine or some kind of weird thing or whatever, but Jesus uh, through repentance and faith in Jesus, that we would repent and put our faith and trust in Jesus. We know the ministry of John the Baptist. We talked about this Saturday. He preached repentance. So a turning from sin and that which is destructive to turning to life in Christ is a message of repentance. And Jesus emphasized repentance through Mark's gospel, the first words are, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. And that's the emphasis. So even you go to the Harvest Crusade last weekend, the message was clearly pro- proclaimed by Greg Laurie, the repentance to turn from sin and put our faith in Jesus Christ. That is a like faith. There's many people who say they have a faith in Jesus, but that faith does not involve repentance and turning from sin. That faith or belief does not involve a transformation of being born of the Spirit and having the second birth. It's an uh, intellectual pseudo-faith without a transforming work of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus said we must be born again. We must be born again. So 
This is critical because as we go forward in this book, Peter is going to address by the Holy Spirit people who say they have faith in Jesus or faith in God or some religious affiliation to Jesus, but they're carnal, they're sensual, uh, they're lascivious, they're not, they're not sanctified, they're not set apart, and there's nothing new under the sun. So just as there are people who, who have Jesus and add to Jesus, it's Jesus plus this baptism or Jesus plus these things or Jesus plus our doctrine or, or Jesus plus baptism this way, there are people who have Jesus minus righteousness, Jesus minus repentance, Jesus minus the word of God. And that's, that's the danger that Peter's going to really go after in this book. So obtaining faith is getting the firm foundation through faith in the person of Jesus Christ. Peter, when he wrote First Peter, he said as newborn believers being born again of the word of God and that we should desire the pure milk of the word. So when someone's born again through faith in God and they pass from death to life through faith in Jesus, we will see that they will desire spiritual things. Uh, we just had a new grand, grandbaby and, you know, he, he desires milk. He desires milk on a schedule and a sequence. Uh, it's a natural desire. You don't have to say, hey, little baby, you, need, you, desi- you should desire milk right now. They'll let you know they desire milk. That's what babies do. And so that's a natural physical thing for all of us when we were newborns and all of us who have had children and raised children. We know that's how it works. And babies will let you know that they desire milk. It's the nutrients and it's the way God designed it. And Peter took that natural thing that we understand in the human experience in all cultures and every generation. And he says for the church that as newborn babes, we should desire the pure milk of the word. So we don't, we don't give a, a newborns Coca-Cola, you know. In fact, the government's trying to outlaw that, right? So we don't give them um, Starburst and Skittles, you know. Like, uh, you give them the nutrients you raise kids on good food, and their kids desire, your kids desire good food. They recognize good food, and they get sick from junk food. That's literally what happens. I mean, if you raise your kids on junk food, that's all they know. But if you eat healthy and then you eat bad, your body repels that, okay? So the idea is that Peter took this knowledge that you would naturally desire with a new, a new nature, born again, with a new nature, you're going to desire that which is of the new nature. So the clearest indication that someone has repentance and faith in Jesus Christ is they will desire the word of God. They will want to hear the word of God. They will want to press into the word of God. They will want to read books about the Lord, books about faith. They'll want to listen to music about the Lord. They'll want to read supplemental readings about the Lord. It's, it's there. You don't have to say like, hey, you're a, new, you're a new believer. You need to go to church. It's like, well, I don't really feel like it. It's like, no, it's like, yeah, let's go to church. There are people this weekend who went forward at the Harvest Crusade last weekend, and these people are going to midweek services all over Southern California this week, and they're excited to because they have a new nature. And they're going to figure out how you stand in worship or whatever. And they might be in a church where people are like, woo And they'll be like, okay, woo You know, they might be in a church where they're singing hymns. It's like, how great thou art. You know, they're going to figure it out and find their temperament for their faith. But they're going to desire the pure miracle of the word. They have obtained a like precious faith. The faith preached by Greg Laurie and preached in two weeks here at Bolsa Chica that we're a part of or preached through our gospel track or, or testimonies of what God's in our life. It's a, it's a faith that's obtained. We all obtained it the same way. We're not here tonight under any different sequence of a, a special code or distinction. We're all here through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. That's how we're birthed in the church. And we have obtained through faith in Jesus Christ. We've obtained this faith. We heard it. We believe it. And 
The Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're his and we're in the, the right faith. Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. We're looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And that spirit in us moves us to want to read the word. That spirit in us moves us to want to sing songs like, all I need is you, Lord, is you, Lord. The spirit does that because we have a new nature and we've passed from death to life and we're a new creation. And so there's new desires. And the second birth for the human soul is to desire the spiritual things of the human soul, the word of God. Just like the baby born the first time, or as Nicodemus said, how can a man go back in his mother's womb? That baby for sure goes this way. But the second birth is born of the spirit to desire spiritual things, and the spiritual things are the word of God. This is the foundation of this book because he's going to address wrong faiths. And that's why I'm emphasizing this for our foundation. Obtained. We have received Christ. It's a precious faith. We have believed. We've not earned it. We're not here because we earned something. We're not here because we've attained. This isn't a special class of religious people because we've attained something more than someone else. We're here through faith in Jesus. When Peter presided with Paul and uh, James, the, the brother of the Lord, at the, at the Jerusalem Council there in Acts 15, and they harmonized, they, they got together and they said, is there, a church, is there a church for Jewish people who have the Old Testament and the law and the men have circumcision, these things? And then there's a church for Gentiles who don't have the law and whatever. Are there, are there two different churches? And, and they came together and it says the Holy Spirit guided them. And they concluded very clearly there's, there's one church. And it's through like precious faith. And Peter said, why would we put something heavy duty on these Gentiles that we ourselves nor our forefathers could carry. We didn't earn this. We received this through faith and believing in Jesus. In fact, the, the best image of that, Peter receiving, obtaining his faith, was when Jesus said, cast your nets on the other side, and the nets were bursting there in Luke, and, Jesus, and Peter looked at Jesus and said, just apart from me, man, I'm a sinful man. He confessed his sins right there. And Jesus said, hey, from now on, you'll be a fisher of men. It's okay, let's go. I will make you. It's not what you're earning or doing. I will make you. I'm going to do it. I'm going to transform you. We're being transformed from glory to glory. I will make you a fisher of men. You just make yourself available. Depart from me, I'm a sinful man. There's the confession and repentance. And Jesus says, I will make you a fisher of men. Let's go. Let's go. Let's go. And here we go. We have it right here in the end of his life. He's a fisher of men. He's a shepherd. Remember, Jesus said to Peter, do you love me? Feed my lambs. Do you love me? Feed my sheep. Do you love me? Tend my flock. Take care of my people. What's this book about? It's about taking care of the people. It's not about so much the teaching. It's about the tending and dealing with things that need to be dealt with. The teaching is the easy part. The tending is the hard part when you've got to tend the flock. And that's what Peter's doing for the entire, his entire generation. But for church history, this book is here to tend the flock and to identify things that are not good. So we've received this precious faith, and it's a righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. It's not our righteousness. We did not earn this. It's through faith in Jesus. Paul the Apostle would say that around the same time as the Jerusalem Council, that if righteousness came by the works of the law or keeping the Ten Commandments, being a good person, then Christ died in vain, because he wrote Galatians about the same time. And he says, but Christ has not died in vain, for righteousness has not come through the law, but comes through faith in Jesus Christ. So... This opening verse is so critical because Peter says, hey, I'm the servant of all, but I'm also the apostle of Jesus Christ. 
So he's a servant leader. And we've obtained a common, like, precious faith. It is precious, too. And it is a righteousness of our God and Savior that we have because we have the position, we pass from death to life, and when we receive Christ, we haven't earned that. We believe it, and we're given this positional righteousness where we know that God sees us like he sees the Son. So he looks at us and sees his righteous Son who did not come to cancel the law of God, but to fulfill it. Did not come to cancel the prophecies and the prophets, but to fulfill it. So Jesus lived that perfect sinless life on our behalf, and that perfect life is imputed and reckoned to our account. So this like precious faith creates a, gives us a righteousness in Christ. And so God the Father sees us the way he sees the Son. It's not just like a criminal that's acquitted of a crime where you've been acquitted of a crime like, hey, uh, mistrial, whatever, you can go, and you go, and then you can still be a criminal. Christ died to, to, to bring the, the unjust to just, to the Father. And he died once for all. And so we're forgiven. The crime is forgiven. He died in the, on the cross for our sins. That's one thing. But then his righteousness is given to us. And so his perfect righteousness allows him to be that sacrifice in our place because God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. So it's a two for one. See, his perfect sinless life is the substitute for our sinful life. And then his righteousness, so we're acquitted of our sins, but then his righteousness is imputed to our lives. So like a criminal being released, not only is our our felonies and misdemeanors forgiven, but we're now given the ability to live a life as an outstanding citizen, for lack of a better, you know, uh, imagery. We don't have to keep being a criminal. We have a new nature. The Bible literally says, can a leper change its spots? Yeah, we have a new nature. Because if any woman, any man be in Christ, we're a new creation, all things have passed away. So we get positional righteousness. The moment we believe those people the Harvest Crusade, they're saved. They're eternally saved. They're sailed, sealed by the Holy Spirit. They're as saved as saved going to be. And then like all of us, they begin this journey to live their life and let the practical righteousness through the Holy Spirit work in our life play itself out. As we desire the pure milk of the word, we grow. Little babies grow. They become toddlers. They become you know, elementary age, become teenagers, tweeners, and they become men and women. You know, it's like that's how it works with the Lord the same way. But that righteousness is established the moment we believe in faith. The positional righteousness, because of who God is, our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. And of course, this is a very famous verse uh, ascribing deity to Jesus Christ. That God and Savior put together in Jesus Christ, it is ascribing Jesus as our Savior, but also as God. And of course, he is God. He's the Son of God. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God the Father. The Word was God. The Word is God. And all things were made that were made were made by the Word. And nothing was made that wasn't made uh, without the Word. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. The law came through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. So Jesus is God. And Jesus walked the world for 33 years. God came into this planet through the virgin birth and lived a perfect sinless life to die in our place, but to live a perfect life and impute that to our account so the Father sees us like he sees the Son. On your best day, he still doesn't see your best batting average. He sees the the Son's batting average. 
On your worst day, he doesn't see your worst pitching experience. He sees the sun's pitching experience, to use baseball analogies. You're always perfect before the throne through your faith in Jesus Christ. Christ died once for all. That's why there's no more priesthood. That's why there's no more animal sacrificial system. That's why there's no more high priest, because he's our perfect high priest who died in our place, imputes his righteousness to our account, and he's seated at the right hand of the Father and ever lives to intercede for us. Amen? Amen. This is that like precious faith. we got to get the right faith. You know, we don't want people reading this book. By the way, a lot of churches don't like this book because they do everything this book says not to do because they're licentious and carnal. Not a lot of churches in the United States or around the world teaching verse by verse through Second Peter. It can get pretty uncomfortable at times. But let God be true, every man a liar. The truth is the truth. It's not going to change. If you got cancer, you got cancer. Truth is the truth. If you need to repent from sin, you need to repent from sin. If you want to ask for a double portion, ask for a double portion. And if God wants to give you a double portion, good for you. He'll confirm it when you strike the water with Elijah's mantle. If he doesn't, then so be it. But God be true and every man a liar. We're the church through our faith that we've obtained like precious faith, through the righteousness of God, our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, which is imputed to our lives the moment we believe. And we rejoice in that. By grace you've been saved, that through faith, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship. Which kind of takes us to the next thought process. So he has given us all things. Verse 3, will grace and peace be multiplied? Yeah. Why settle for addition when you can have multiplication, huh? Grace and peace be multiplied. I suppose we can use, all of us can use that multiplication. And it's multiplied in the knowledge of God and of, our, of Jesus our Lord. Verse 3, as his divine power is given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So in the second birth and being born again, God's power is imputed to our lives. And he has given us all things pertaining to life and godliness. Greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. So it is the Holy Spirit living in us that produces the fruit of the Spirit. It is the Spirit of God empowering us that restrains us from evil and sets us in righteousness. It is a spirit that yearns within us. And even as Romans 8 says, when we're just overwhelmed, gives us groanings when it's beyond us to get through whatever it is we're going through. The Holy Spirit lives in us. That's why in the New Testament we're told that we are the temple of God, that the Holy Spirit dwells in us. Even in the Old Old Testament, as the Spirit of God literally, physically inhabited the earth in one spot, there in the holiest of holies with the tabernacle under the Mosaic law of the Old Testament with the covenant with the Jews, first in the tent with the tabernacle from about 1500 B.C., to about 900 B.C. when Solomon built the temple. So it was about 600-year reign. Whenever that tabernacle moved around, the Spirit of God literally was in the holiest of holies, the presence of God. And only once a year the high priest could go in there. Then the temple was built. And what did we see when Solomon dedicated the temple? The Spirit came and overwhelmed the people. His presence overwhelmed the people. He confirmed that God dwelt among them and he would be in that temple. And his presence was identified being in their midst. Now, we are told clearly that the Holy Spirit indwells believers in 1 Corinthians and Romans and also 1 John and bears witness with our spirit. We have a spirit, spirit, mind, and body. 
But we are told that when we are born of the second birth through faith in Jesus Christ, repentance and faith, his spirit literally comes into us. And even as in your heart, you can feel when you're heartbroken or you're grieved, so too the Holy Spirit comes in and you can know the joy of the spirit and you can know the conviction of the spirit and the correction and the leading of the spirit. He literally indwells us. We are told that our bodies are the temple of God. Do you not know that the Holy Spirit abides in you? Is what the New Testament, what the Holy Spirit said through Paul the Apostle to the Corinthian church. So we have the Spirit of God in us. Now, the Spirit of God created the universe. God is triune. Let us make man in our image, Genesis 1.29. But Genesis, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Well, that's Elohim in the Hebrew. That's uh, a uniplural noun, compound unity of more than one within one. So when the two become one in marriage, or the husband and wife, it's the same thing. It's compound unity. That's why I say, like, if I tell the husband or uh, tell a man or a pastor or a deacon something, then I consider that to be told to their wives because the two become one. They're compound unity. They're one. And God's eyes are one. And the same thing with God and his nature. In the very beginning, Genesis 1.1, that Elohim means like it can be translated God's plural. But here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. So when you harmonize scripture, God is Father, Son, and Spirit within one. He's one. God is triune, but he's one. And then what's so cool is in the second verse, it says the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the earth. And so we see that the Spirit of God is, as all things were made by Christ and for Christ and held together by him, the Father made all things and the Spirit made all things because God in his triune nature made the universe. So everything in the macro world from billions of galaxies to billions of planets that you can't even wrap your mind around to the microcosmic world with billions of things that you can't even see to the naked eye that you you can't wrap wrap your mind around, all of it, the Spirit of God had the power to make that. Every great creature our eyes can see, every great thing in space, our sun and the energy of our sun when you consider it, everything at the telescopes to go out to see can, out to space can telegraph back to us the Hubble and these things and you look at Saturn and Uranus it's like it's like God's power made those things why do most of them go this way but one of a few of them go that way just because he's messing with us like platypus he's just having fun butterflies and sand dollars man God has a sense of humor and there's joy in the Lord that power that made the universe dwells within us That power that made the birth of Christ through the virgin birth without conception the way we understand it through sexual intimacy, that's amazing. It's miraculous, and it had to be so. Because from the first cell on, as Jesus left heaven and humbled himself, taking the form of a servant, even taking on capital punishment, the lowest place you can be in the human adventure for our sins, It all began with the one cell. That power where Jesus Christ at the right hand of the Father who cast out Satan, that power to humble himself and become one cell in the womb of a teenager, Mary, and that power to humble himself before humanity for 30 years in the carpenter shop of Nazareth, that power to confront evil and take on the devil and defilement and disease and show himself victorious over every realm that we understand, including death and disease and defilement. That power dwells in you. And that's why Jesus said, 
that I've done great things, but if you believe, you can do greater things. Because the power is availed to us. God has given us all things pertaining to this life. Divine power to life and godliness. Divine power to crucify the flesh. Divine power to have victory over sin, victory over the grave, victory over the devil. The power where Jesus casts out legion, frees the mute. All the other things we see, that power is available to us. The last thing he said in Mark 16 was this power is available to you. The last thing he said in Matthew 28 for the church age, all authority, now go. That power is available to us. It's not that the power is not availed. It's that we're not tapping into it or receiving it. Jesus is saying yesterday, today, forever. The power is not limited. He's unlimited. His power for our lives, his power for the church, his power for the universal church, the local church, his power in every tongue, tribe, and nation, his power in the last days, the power of his word, the power of his promises. He is God and there is no other. And at his name, every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he's Lord for all eternity. The power to raise up everyone that ever lived from the seas and the dirt. That's the power that he has. That's who he is. The power to change a funeral procession with the widow name. The power to change the mourning in the home of a 12-year-old whose parents are beyond being consoled. The power to bring back a man who's been in the grave for days is a power that's availed to us. We should never forget that. We see limits through fear and unbelief. We need to see power through faith and confidence looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. Not one promise ever comes short because of God's power. It comes short because of humanity's unbelief. And if we ever needed the power, we need it now. We need that power in our life to die to ourselves. We need that power in the church to believe in a greater future than the past that we've inherited in this generation of millennials. We need that power in the Calvary movement to believe that God can do greater things after Pastor Chuck is gone as opposed to when he was here and it all began. We need this power to believe God for great things and to stand back and see the might of the Lord. Like Moses said when he was boxed in between Paul-Hiharoth Migdal and the Red Sea and Pharaoh's army was coming, and he said, stand back and see the power of your God. And that power of God was availed through the staff of Moses, the servant of the Lord. We need to leave here tonight believing in the power of God for our lives, being fully capable to do what God wants to do in our lives. We need to leave church with confidence that greater is he that's in us and he that's in the world. That God's power is greater than our flesh. That God's power is greater than our fears. That God's power and promises are greater than what doctors say or governments say. That the darkest tomorrow bows the knee and confesses lordship of Christ to the people of faith today. That's what we need to get right straight here. This man's about to be crucified upside down. For his faith, this man who wrote this. Before we're done with this chapter, he's going to say that he's going to always give them a reminder of these things after his decease. 
This is a man who knows he's moving toward eternity, just like Paul in 2 Timothy when he said, I finished my race, I've, you know, I've kept the faith, it's time. Sometimes we know we're going, sometimes we don't, but we go. And this power, all things. We don't need the psychologies of men. We don't need the Jesus plus the book that's the best book you ever read. Childlike faith, second birth, passion for the kingdom will give you and me all the power we ever need from here to eternity to live a victorious life that glorifies Christ and a transforming life that transforms the world and the people around us. That's the legacy of the church. It's the legacy of great revivals. But this power has to work first in us and then it'll work through us. But don't leave here tonight doubting that he hasn't given you all things pertaining to life and godliness. Because he has the power of the Holy Spirit in us. Greater is he that's in us than he that's in the world. And that's not just against the devil. That's against our flesh. It's the confidence of courage to just do the right thing and be the right thing. And he says, godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue. So our power is based upon our knowledge of him, knowing who he is, his character, what he's about, what he's promised, what he's going to do, what he's done. And he's called us to glory. The power in us says there's a glory to come. It's not yet revealed, but when he comes, when he is revealed, we will be revealed in the same glory that he has. And it says, and virtue. That word virtue there has the idea of moral excellence. Glory to come, moral excellence. And we read on. By which, having been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises, verse 4, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So we've obtained this like precious faith. We have this divine power in us that equips us to everything pertaining to life and godliness. But... By which, okay, so the, uh, this power that pertains to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us. Okay, what's been given to us through this faith that we've obtained, the promise of this divine power? What's been given to us? Exceedingly great and precious promises. Of course, the whole Bible is just one giant promise. The whole book's a promise of good things for people of faith and accountability and wrath for people of unbelief and pride. It's a promise for those who do good. It's a promise for those who do the right thing. It's a promise for those who forgive and who are gracious and merciful and turn the other cheek. It's a promise for those who persevere. It's a promise for those who stand when others don't. It's a promise for everything, good, just, true, noble, and praiseworthy. The promises of God are yes, yes, from the Father of light, through whom there is no shadow of turning. He doesn't say yes and no. That's why I think it's so important as a Christian that your word is the highest credibility imaginable. That when we say yes, people can can bank their lives on your yes. Once you lose the credibility of your word as a Christian... It takes a long time 
to gain that back. And even then, it has an asterisk next to it, like a Barry Bonds home run record. You'll get it back, but there's an asterisk. It just has an asterisk. These promises are amazing. You see, since all Scripture is profitable, that we can be thoroughly equipped for every good work, New Testament claim, then we as believers and people of covenant, the new and everlasting covenant, can go back and look at the old covenants, and we can derive principles and applications and promises for our lives. Now, contextually, some promises are going to have limits, contextual limits. Historical contextual limits. But most don't, because most deal with the heart, the soul, the mind, and the life of, of believers. I mean, Hebrews 11 starts with Abel as the leader of faith that goes through Sarah and other heroes. And that faith, although they had greater revelation in their journey of faith through different covenants, and it brings us to the new and everlasting covenant, it's always faith. It's, all, it's always been about believing the promises. Abel heard a promise about how he could be forgiven, and he brought a lamb and blood before God. His brother did not. Noah heard promises about something to come that was incomprehensible to the mind. But he's a preacher of righteousness. He proclaimed righteousness. He did the right thing, and he obeyed God. He did exactly what God told him to do. Took a while, but he did it. Abraham believed God. And it was accounted to him for righteousness. God gave promises to Abraham that from his wife who was barren would come a nation and through that nation would come a man, the Savior and the Redeemer of the world of all humanity. The promises are there for us. Every one of them. In some way. You you should be able to read any book of the Bible in your morning devotion tomorrow and find promises for you as a believer in Jesus Christ. Song of Solomon, his banner overused love. Did you ever forget that? Ecclesiastes, he's put eternity in our hearts. What's the whole sum of the matter? Obey God, fear the Lord, and obey his commandments. That's a promise. It'll be well with you. Every book, it's all there. It's all there. So we have this, obtain this like precious faith. We have this divine power given to us pertaining to life and godliness, and we have these exceedingly great and precious promises through which we become partakers of the divine nature. We grow in faith. We grow in transformation from old Eve to the new daughter of the king, from the old Adam to the transformed son of the king and joint heirs with Christ. That happens through reading of the word, our faith growing, and believing these promises and letting these promises stir us up, encourage us, strengthen us, and move us toward those things that God has for us. The woman who wakes up with the promises of God on her Wednesday morning is a woman of faith. She, if she makes time for the Lord, if she reads the word and she and believes that God cares about every hair on her head, which he does, and the events of her life, and she reads the word and believes those promises, that is a triumphant woman on the good day and on the bad day. And so too it is with the young man. The promises of God go with Danny Foster on his first day of school at Boise State yesterday. They go with my son, Luke, grinding it out at Starbucks, trying to provide for his wife. They go with Leah, raise, waking up overwhelmed with two children now. And those of you who have been there, you know what that's like. 
They're there for when you go to work as a fireman. They're there when you, whatever God has for you, you go to work at Disneyland. If you're retired, they're there. Talking with Fred about his dad, Fred Sr., who's got cancer. And we were talking about what would you do at 83 if you got cancer. I'd wake up and read about the promises of God. That's what I'd do. That's what I intend to do. I've spent a lot of time with 83-year-old people lately. And if they start taking out body parts, and I still got the breath of life in me, I'm going to wake up, and I'm going to seek the living God. And I'm going to read about the promises that await me for my body and glory in heaven. And those promises are going to guide me in the character that God wants to work in me in the last days of my life, in the final season, the final chapter. I'm going to wake up in assisted living in 89 with exceedingly great and precious promises to to have this divine power available to me when every part of my body hurts and I get a little fuzzy about where I'm at and who I am. Someone comes in and plays a Phil Wickham song when I'm 89, I'm going to know that song and the promises of that song are going to be my strength for that day. That's what we're talking about here. It's, it's, the living, it's the life of Christ in the reality of the human experience on the good days and the bad days. And these promises, he said, it's a, it obtained a precious faith, and this precious faith is based upon precious promises. And they're there for us. And it's through these we become partakers of the divine nature. As we believe the promises, we're being transformed from glory to glory. And through these, by being partakers of the divine nature, we're escaping the corruption that is in the world. And we close with this thought, this corruption in the world through lust. Escape means, like, when I say escape, you're like, you're not trying to escape from Disneyland. If you're a surfer and the surf's pumping, it's uncrowded. You're not trying to escape from the lineup, right? If they're reading the trust and the will and you're going to get a bunch of money, you're not trying to escape from the law office. If the carpool lane's moving fast and regular traffic stopped up and you can sit in the carpool lane, you're not trying to escape from the carpool lane. Escape means you're trying to get away from something contrary to what you want or should want. Escape implies that you've been ensnared or imprisoned. So it's the divine power of the Holy Spirit in our life in Christ that equips us to escape. And it is our faith, of t- this precious faith, with the power and believe in the promises by believing by which we do escape. We escape Nebuchadnezzar's fiery furnace. We escape the lion's den. We escape the fear of the king when we bow the knee as Esther. We escape, he opens prison's doors and set the captives free. And if we don't escape, and if it's our time, then we just say like Meshach, Shach, and Abednego. Whatever, we're not, we're not going to change who we are. If this is it, this is it. Because... Death is a shadow for the believer, but the substance is for the non-believer. We never really experience death. We pass through the valley of the shadow of death. The non-believer, they're entering into it fully. You think they look bad dying in a 90-year-old body with unbelief and vile thoughts and a vile mouth. Wait till they get to the other side. But we escape. And the good shepherd leads us through the valley of the shadow of death, and it has no power over us. Because he's the good shepherd and he laid down his life for the sheep. So we're going to escape death. We've already escaped death. That's a, that's a precious promise. But before we fully escape death and step into eternity, he's got the great escape for all the things that would keep us from the life we're meant to have, the abundant life in Jesus Christ. Precious faith, 
all the power necessary availed for life and godliness, exceedingly precious and great promises that we can escape. Jesus didn't die on the cross so we can be in bondage. He died on the cross for victory that we could escape the things that would snare us. And usually it's the person we see in the mirror. So God help us to look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, with this faith that we've obtained through repentance and trust in him, the second birth, the power, the promises, and the deliverance. The context of this book was in challenging times. The context of the church, any generation, is always challenging times. So to me, I love the opening of Second Peter. It just gets, it's fastball, fastball, fastball. Precious faith, power, life, godliness, precious promises, escape, ring them. It's everything we need right there in Jesus Christ. Before it gets to all the ugly stuff, there's ugly stuff coming in this book. This is all good stuff. So take it to heart and leave this place tonight believing that there's a better future with the power of God in your life tomorrow than what you've experienced up to this day because it's there for all of us. Lord, we thank you for your word here tonight and its application to our lives. We lift up this passage to you and what it means to each of us. It means different things tonight.